passage I'm reading from this morning is Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They've got no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you? by worrying, can add a single hour to your life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more would he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what, what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. That's the, the word of the Lord. In this very helpful and relevant sermon series that Pastor Eddie has been teaching, today's topic of overrated resources strikes right at the heart of our struggle to live in such a way that we bring honour and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our resources range from material things like money, houses, crops, possessions, to the manpower and labour force available to use, to our intellect, academic and physical abilities, and to opportunities arising from relationships, family ties and geographic location. Now, as always, when we look at a topic like this, 
we must start with our focus on the Lord God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read that in the beginning, God created everything and he did so out of nothing. As King David reminds us in Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God made everything and he owns everything and everyone but he doesn't need anything or anyone because he is completely self-sufficient. Asaph the psalmist wrote down the Lord's own words in Psalm 50 verses 9 through 11. This is what the Lord said, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. So every resource is therefore, by definition, the Lord's. And whatever we might have is only on loan to us temporarily. And we have been loaned them for a purpose, for which the Lord will hold each of us accountable. We are to steward them so that the Father's kingdom and the Father's will are done here on earth as they already are in heaven. Consider the most valuable, necessary and vital resource we all need. No, it's not gold or oil or computer chips or dollars or bitcoin or cars or anything like that. It is far more fundamental and important its nutritional food and clean drinking water. The Father intentionally created us to need these things to survive, which is why Jesus told us to pray to his Father to provide us with our daily resource of bread. Luke 11 verse 3. And Jesus continued this teaching in Luke 12, verse 22. I read this earlier when he said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? However, in 2021, about 10% of the world's population, around 800 million people, went to bed with an empty stomach. And more about 880 million people were without basic drinking water. How do we reconcile this? Well, the tragic fact is that every year the world does produce enough for everyone's need, just not enough for everyone's greed. We've chosen not to share our God-given resources, and as a result, every single day, over 25,000 people die from preventable hunger. Whoa. The only person Jesus called a fool was in the parable in Luke 12 I read earlier, about a rich man who had an abundant harvest. He was entrusted with a great amount of resources. But instead of sharing this blessing with others, he selfishly believed that all the food was his, for him to store up for many years, to build bigger barns, so that he could enjoy an easy life. 
Not so fast, you fool, said God. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Verse 20. A classic case overrating his resources. There's a story of a man who loved gold and bought lots to protect himself from a stock market crash. When he died, he somehow managed to smuggle a bar of that gold with him, and when he met St. Peter at the pearly gates, he, he proudly offered it to Pete. But Peter looked very puzzled and asked, Why have you brought a paving stone with you? That's what we make the streets with here. Overrated. The Lord doesn't need our money. He wants us to use it wisely and generously to help others in need. In the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, the Lord describes himself in an unusual way. Let me read it to you. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Here's the key phrase. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We're not to make or worship idols. This includes our resources. But if we do, and let's be honest, we all do, we will discover that the Lord God is a jealous God. <laughs> you have to admit that sounds a highly commendable characteristic, doesn't it? Imagine preparing your resume for a job interview and putting jealousy under your character traits. Do you think that will win them over? Can you hear the directors? Wow, this person is exactly who we need to move to the next level. Clearly what we've been missing is the magic ingredient of jealousy. We could do with a few more jealous folk around here. Jealousy for us is a messy term. But the Lord is pure, perfect, holy, right, just, true and good. When he describes himself as being jealous, he's using the term positively. His jealousy is a holy jealousy. What the Lord is saying is that he loves each and every one of us so much, so deeply, so passionately, so truly, that it breaks his heart when he sees us making poor and destructive decisions. When we put our confidence in our resources instead of in him. When we seek to find our security, our self-worth and our status in something or someone else. How does a jealous God respond when we do this? Most often he simply removes what has come between him and us. In this case, the overrated resource that has got in the way and caused us to take our eyes off Jesus. So he takes it away. The problem is that we, we like this resource. We've put our trust in it. We're enamoured by it. We value it and we get our status and security from it. At that point, we don't see it to be a problem. We think it's something beneficial. So when God intervenes and removes the idol, we tend to respond by screaming and shouting and blaming God for the loss. Or we think that the enemy stole it away and we cry out with great passion to God, please kick out Satan and return it to us, please. We fail to see that something destructive and unhelpful that has diluted our intimacy with the Father has been graciously removed. 
If God did not react like this in the face of such harm to our relationship with him, it would show that he neither cares about us or the mess we've got ourselves into. Now, I tend to learn best when I see how these truths work out in other people's lives. King David, for example. He messed up big time in this area of overrating his resources. And one particular incident is recorded three times in the Bible as a warning to us all. To comprehend why what he did was so wrong, we need to understand that the Lord God had given to the king of Israel two primary duties to provide for the people and to protect the people, to provide and to protect. For both of these, the king was to be completely reliant upon the Lord God, reliant that he would give him all the resources that the king needed to achieve this. First Chronicles chapter 21 details what happened. In verse 1, we're told that it was Satan who incited David to take a census of the whole nation of Israel. There's no rationale given for David's census, but essentially there were two reasons for a census in the biblical world. To levy taxes or to register adult males for military service. Joab was the commander of the troops, and he reported to King David that there were 1.57 million, that's 1,570,000 fighting men in the country. That's a large army which indicates that this was the purpose of the census, to count the size of David's army. Whatever deception Satan used, King David's motivation, according to the Lord in verse 7, was evil, and he was held responsible for his actions. Remember, David, the king's role, was to protect the citizens of Israel, But by commissioning the census, he was placing his trust in his resources, his armed forces. They were a tribute to his own strength and power. He should have placed his faith in the promises of the true warrior of Israel, the Lord God, who had covenanted to protect the nation. Now, in all fairness, when David realized his sinfulness, on three occasions he expressed his distress and deep contrition, verses 8, 13, and 17. The Lord God heard him, and he responded responded by halting the plague with which he had been punishing Israel. Remember that the Lord is a jealous God, and that he often removes the resource that we've overrated and chosen to place our confidence in. That plague, sent by the Lord God, specifically targeted and killed 70,000 men of Israel. Verse 17. The very object of David's foolish pride. David had overrated the size, the power, and the importance of his army, and subsequently and disastrously he had underrated the Lord's infinite resources and his protective power, as well as the importance of choosing to trust the Lord. We don't know when David wrote Psalm 20, but I hope it was after this harrowing incident, because in verses 7 and 8 he wrote, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up 
and stand firm. Another good example is the great apostle Paul. And he gave a very helpful and personal teaching on the subject of overrated resources in chapter 3 of his letter to the church in Philippi. Paul used an accounting analogy. So do all of you involved with that most interesting of professions? Sorry, accountants. Here's one for you. And if you hate figures, hold on, they will make sense. Specifically, Paul was using the profit and loss account. Have you ever done this with your life? Each day or week or month or year, weighing up the profits, the positives, mm, not a bad day, not a bad year, and the losses, the negatives, the mistakes, and hoping the pluses outweigh the minuses. Paul's profits or resources were a combination of divine intervention and of his own effort. By divine information, it was those things over which he had no control. It's the same true for us. In Paul's case, it was his race as a Hebrew, his tribe as a Benjamite, his circumcision as a Jew. It's not your fault where you were born or who your parents are or were, or even the decisions they made for you. Nor is it to your credit if you have good and generous parents, or if you were born in a great place like um, London, England. These are God's choosing and not our making. And then there was Paul's effort, his actions and achievements. We all make choices in life, and these are the things we have to live with, our mistakes and our good decisions as well. Now, for Paul, they were all seen as profit too. He had done exceedingly well. He was a Pharisee, very important, a clergyman. He was a persecutor, very zealous, and he was legalistically righteous, very good. But then in verse 7, Paul makes the surprising statement that all these wonderful things that he had by birth or that he achieved in his life, he considered loss. He put them on the loss, on the negative side of the balance sheet. He came to realise that whilst it all looked good and, and sounded good, it was in fact eternally worthless. The status of a man or woman, whether gained from their parents or self-made, is of no interest whatsoever to Jesus. Despite possessing all these resources, the things the world craves for and strives for and longs for and idolises, Paul dismisses them all because they did not bring him, and they cannot now bring us, into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching and experience go so against the thinking of the world, doesn't it? He is so blunt, he's clear-cut. You can acquire all the resources of the world and still possess nothing of eternal value. All the money in the world, and yet you are impoverished. All the doctorates gained, and yet you have no understanding of the ways of God. All the directorships attained and yet still no power over your eternal destination. All the influence and still none over God. All the charisma and yet your life and relationships break down. All the popularity and yet you can be deeply alone. All of these things don't even register on the scale. The needle doesn't even move off zero. 
In eternal terms, all these things are non-events. Or to use Paul's much more vivid and graphic terminology in verse 8, they are rubbish. More literally, dung, excrement. They are egregious in God's eyes. Here then Paul exposes his fundamental values. On one side stands everything all the resources that this world has to offer. On the other side stands Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul insists that there is no contest. Jesus and the righteousness from God that Jesus secures are incomparably better. Being able to distinguish between what the world values and what truly counts with God is the insight and discernment that I pray we would all receive and daily apply. It will cost us to do so. As G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. It will mean a radical change in your life and your lifestyle. You will have to consider resources rubbish which you once coveted and strived for zealously. As I draw to a close, I want us to look at Jesus, always our best and greatest example. Matthew 4 verses 1 to 10 describes an occasion of how Satan tempted Jesus three times. The first temptation was whether Jesus believed that his father would provide food for him. The second temptation was whether he believed that his father would protect him. Once again, we see provide and protect. Jesus firmly resisted both. But the third temptation he faced, verses 8 to 10, was to be offered all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Jesus was tempted with all the resources. Satan actually said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. The temptation to possess resources for the wrong reason will always lead to idolatry, the worship of Satan. In verse 10, Jesus commanded Satan, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus clearly reveals the link between worship and service. For what we worship, we will serve, and what we serve, we will worship. A little bit later, after these temptations, Jesus preached his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Many consider the central verse of the sermon to be chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or they will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, and by this Jesus said it was meaning it is impossible, you cannot serve both God and. Here Jesus said both God and money. But the foolish rich man learned that he could not serve both God and abundant crops. And King David learned that he could not serve both God and huge armed forces. And the Apostle Paul learned that he could not serve both God and academic achievements and worldly status. What have you learned today? 
Where have you been attempting to have both God and overrated resources? Will you choose to repent, change your thinking, before the zealous, jealous God removes from you your idol, your resources? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for promising to provide us with our daily bread and to protect us from the evil one. Please forgive us when we seek these resources elsewhere. Lord Jesus, thank you for living a life of complete dependence upon the Father and the Spirit. Please help us to follow your example. Holy Spirit, please fill us afresh this morning with your power so that we can resist the temptations of the devil and by grace live in faithful obedience to the Father as his children. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.